Heavenly Father, I just ask that you'll bless Debbie as she brings your word, that you'll flow through her, give her your wisdom and your power. Protect her family, fill her home with your spirit. And we do give you the glory. Amen. Thank you so much. Let me get this. Okay, I have a pop quiz, and I have some treats here for people. Some for the first person with a right answer. You don't count. <laughs> okay, name a state that borders Canada. Raise your hand. Okay. Okay, ready? Number two. How many amendments does the Constitution have? Wait. Close? 20, 27. <laughs> okay, last one. Who was president during World War I? Yes. <laughs> Very good. Okay. That was just a little sampling of some actual potential questions on the U.S. citizenship test. And this is a test that is given to every candidate for U.S. citizenship. And being a U.S. citizen was something I really always took for granted until my aunt uh, went to get her citizenship. My uh, uncle on my dad's side was a long-term missionary in Kyrgyzstan for years and years. He was a linguist, and he worked with Wycliffe Bible translators, translating the Bible into Kyrgyz. While there, he met and married a wonderful Jesus-loving woman who you know, became part of our family. As a young person, I, you know, I just kind of assumed that when you got married, that you gained citizenship in the other country if you didn't happen to share citizenship already. Little did I know, she had to go through the whole process. It just granted her eligibility to apply for citizenship. I still remember the Christmas after she got her citizenship and we all celebrated together as a family. Now, citizenship is something that Paul actually talks quite a bit about in his letters. And Philippians is no exception. Sometimes he's talking about how to conduct yourself within the natural governmental systems. And other times, he's actually using that as an illustration to help the church grasp spiritual concepts. And this was really important because, you know, we live in a day and age where we can just share information with a couple clicks. And in seconds, something can be around the world. But back when Paul was serving, you know, they, they believe that he most likely wrote this letter when he was imprisoned in Rome. Now, if that's the case, by the time he wrote the letter and delivered it, it would take six weeks to get to Philippi. Six weeks. The church would then have to digest that information, write a return letter, and six weeks back. For him to get it, write a re reply six weeks back to clarify. It's 18 weeks. That's a long time. Can you imagine how much confusion and twisting could happen in that time and fights in the church? 
So it was really important that when he wrote, it was very clear, you know, the principles and the teachings in his letters. So, keeping that in mind, let's begin taking a look at our passage in Philippians 3, in uh, verse 20, where he says, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, just for a little bit more frame of reference, Philippi was in the Macedonian area. It was designated as a Roman colony by Mark Antony and Octavius after they uh, defeated Brutus in 42 BCE. So it was about 100 years in the Roman Empire at this point. And Philippi, in particular, was a real target for the Roman Empire. Now, obviously, the Romans really liked to gain territory. We know this historically. They were always looking to expand their empire. And, um, but Philippi, in particular, would have been a target because Philippi was full of gold. They've taken a look at historically and said, you know, after, after the Romans conquered Philippi for 100 years, they were still cranking out about 1,000 talents of gold every year. And one talent's about $30,000 today. That's a lot of gold. In addition, Philippi was right alongside two rivers. So it was a really big trading port. So Philippi was really an urban hub. And interestingly enough, Philippi was also a very popular place for retired Roman soldiers to live after they completed service. So when we think about that, and we think about there's a lot of retired Roman soldiers here, and when they read this sentence, for our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. What are they thinking? What pops right in their head? Well, I was a little surprised by one of the frame of reference uh, culture points because um, the first one was Lord and Savior. Now, I always assumed that was just, oh, Jesus saves me from my sin. He's my Savior. He's my Lord. I've given him my life. He's my master. Yes, that's all true. But as a culture point, the Romans, as we know, were polytheists. They believed in many gods. We read about them in their mythology. But the Romans also ascribed to a state religion. And in the state religion, the emperor was worshipped. It was an imperial cult. And the emperor was referred to as savior. I found that pretty shocking. Julius Caesar actually had an inscription placed in Ephesus uh, describing himself as a visible God and political savior of human life. And right after him, Nero took over, and he was called the savior and benefactor of the world. Now, you know anything about Nero, kind of leaves you scratching your head. He's a little delusional, just a little. But he saw himself as the giver of all good things, such as peace and the ability to operate business and hold property and have material possessions and upholding the law. And 
the term Lord was a title specifically used for a person who had a, a rulership or a master over a pretty large area. So again, it was the connotation of supremacy, of power, of authority. And again, and something that would be unique, a unique title, especially the word savior, was a unique title for only one person in the whole empire. So in other words, when Paul wrote this, yes, it's true, he saves us from our sins, but he was driving home the point that Jesus isn't just another prophet or teacher or rabbi or good man. There's only one. There's, and he's to be worshipped. He's the one at the head of this. He's the one that holds all this together. He's the one that provides the structure. And he is the, the headship of the order and the authority under which we, we live. And what he brings is shalom. It's not a Pax Romana. It's shalom. He is the source of this peace. So Paul was essentially meeting them right where they were at and directing them back to Christ. Now, when they read this word citizenship, there were some things that would have kind of popped in their head. For one thing, in Roman world, civitas was a word for citizenship, but it meant the citizen community, like the people, but it also meant the actual city. So it had a dual meaning there. And in Roman world, citizenship was a highly desired social status. Highly desired. It carried with it a strong sense of belonging to the civic community. It wasn't just something on record in a governmental building. Only free men were allowed to be citizens, and only citizens were allowed to fulfill religious priestly duties. Citizenship with, came with it certain rights. There were some exemption from certain taxes. They were the only ones eligible to be elected. They were able to own property. Non-citizens could not own property. They were able to sue and be sued in a court and to appeal judicial decisions. Now we think, um, why is that a right? A right to be sued, <laughs> right? You think, oh, that's horrible. But actually, this was a protection because Otherwise, there was a very individualized sense of justice. And we see this a little bit in Paul's life where he was whipped and imprisoned without a trial. So the right to be able to, have, to go to court and have a fair trial without punishment first was a huge deal in the Roman culture. Another right of a citizen was that they didn't have to fear crucifixion. Crucifixion was considered a foreigner's or a slave's punishment. Only citizens who committed high treason or uncommonly heinous crimes could even be eligible to be crucified. And interestingly enough, Cicero sums up the Roman position on crucifixion when he stated, the very word cross should be removed not only from the Roman citizen, but from his thoughts, his eyes, and his ears. The mere mention of such a thing is shameful to a Roman citizen and a free man. And the, this word crucifixion or crucified was commonly thrown around as a vulgar insult and was never used in polite company, which is interesting. With citizenship came the rights, 
but also just as central and just as weighty to, to the concept of citizenship was the responsibilities. And with that came the participation in voting and being trained as a warrior. Rome was full of warrior citizens. All the men would be trained to take up arms so they could be ready to defend their area defensively or offensively at any time. So, how did one become a Roman citizen? Well, the easiest way was to be born one. If you were born, fortunate enough to be born to a Roman citizen father, went through the father's line, your parents could take you to the courthouse or whatever the local governmental building was within 30 days of your birth, and they would write up a tablet and a record of you uh, being a citizen, which you would have to carry around the rest of your life. It was two stone tablets that they would inscribe with your name, your parents' names, uh, some witnesses, the, the officials that oversaw your uh, citizenship process, and they would take the two tablets that were inscribed and put the fronts together so that you couldn't see what was written and melt hot wax over them and then wrap them up and bind them up so nobody could commit fraud. You could also, uh, if you were unfortunate enough to be a slave in a Roman house, but fortunate enough to get your freedom, you were eligible for citizenship. If you signed up to serve in the military and you finished your service and you were a foreigner in the area, you could get citizenship. If you were very, 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 very wealthy, you might be able to get citizenship. If there was a decree in your area, you could have citizenship or you could buy it. And that was very, very expensive and often done illegally. Now, as I thought about this, I thought about how highly desirable it was to be a citizen in ancient Rome. And with it, all of the rights, all of the responsibilities, because they took it very, very seriously. What does that mean for us today as Christians? And I thought, it's a privileged participation in a community. It's an honor, something that we should see as an honor. It's that we are part of God's personal community and recipients of his blessings and his shalom peace. That we have an obligation to train and to participate as spiritual warriors and we see this theme throughout Paul's writings. And to recognize the headship and deity of Christ. So let's go back to Philippians 3.20. With all this in mind. Where he says, for our citizenship is in heaven. From which, so out of this community, this honored participation, this honored community that comes together to participate in the doings of Christ. Out of this, we eagerly wait. Now this eagerly wait, it's not like a kid right before Christmas where they're so excited and they just kind of peel away the paper to get a glimpse, but don't rip it because you'll get in trouble. You know, you kind of shake it and you listen. It's not like that. This word, eagerly wait, we, we have two words, but it's one Greek word. It's a triple compound word. And it's an intense separation 
and a complete looking away from something behind you and looking toward something in the front. So you're completely welcoming something here and essentially shunning something back here. So what was Paul telling them to shun? He was telling them to welcome and wait, intensely look for Jesus Christ. But what was back there that you never, ever look back to? For that, we have to back up just a little bit to Philippians 3, 17 to 19, where he says, Brothers, join in following my example and look for those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. For many walk of whom I often told you and now tell you even crying as enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their stomach and glory is in their shame, who set their thoughts on earthly things. Why? Because our citizenship is in heaven. Don't do those things. We operate under a different administration. They're under the wrong administration. And how do we know? Because they deny the power found in the most shameful symbol in the Roman world. Something so shameful, it was a vulgar insult thrown around. Something never used in polite company. Something a Roman citizen would never have to worry about. But every citizen of heaven lives by daily. The cross. Here at Paul's heart, he's devastated. Because here's what happened. There were some false teachers who came in, and Kendra, Pastor Kendrick touched on this last week. There were some false teachers who had come into Philippi, and they were twisting the teachings of Paul. There were some that were Jewish who were coming in, and just to give a little bit of reference and touch on that a little bit more, Christianity wasn't actually seen as a separate faith yet. It was seen as a sect of the Jewish faith. That happened a few decades later when people started looking and said, you know what, this is actually pretty different. I think this is a separate faith. But here, the lines are still really blurred. So there were people that came in and said, oh, if you're going to follow Jesus, you need to be Jewish. And you need to follow the whole law. And it was confusing. And then on top of that, you have, this is a Roman colony full of retired Roman soldiers. And Roman culture was very Hellenistic. And Hellenistic ideology is very much self-pleasure. You live by to make yourself happy. That's its driving motivation every day. You live to make yourself happy. Their God is their stomach, right? I want it. Well, then I'm going to go get it. It was common culture that permeated the region. But what Paul was saying is, both of those are wrong. Both of those are the wrong administrations. You don't need to come under religion and Jewish law, and you can't live by this common culture that permeates, and you certainly can't live for and by yourself. All of that is destructive, and they've done studies on that, and even if you have a positive self-focus, looking out for your happiness all the time, it's still very highly associated with anger, loneliness, depression. It, it doesn't bring happiness. 
They've done studies like on things like money and just filling your bank account and having more and more money does not make people happy at all. Spending money on yourself does not make you happy. If you're looking to that to make you happy and to bring you peace, you're not going to find it. They've actually shown that spending money on other people is what makes you a lot happier. Just a little tip there. But what Paul is saying is these are all wrong administrations. Don't live by them. Shun them. Never, ever, ever look back and press on toward the goal. Press on toward the call that God has for you. Forget what lies behind and reach forward to what lies ahead. Never give up. Don't give up. Don't get distracted. Don't ever look back. And you know what he called his, his accolades? Our English Bibles translated as rubbish or garbage. The Greek word there, you know, his whole list. If I was a Pharisee, I was, you know, born to Jewish heritage. I pursued the law. I was righteous. He called it all scubalon. And scubalon is actually more appropriately translated into English. Don't get mad at me. It's in the Bible. As poop. So, that's what he thought of religion. So, but what he tells them is to follow the pattern that you see in me now. I live by the cross. The Lord, my Savior, is Jesus Christ. Live how you see me live. So, what I said, well, let's take a look. What was Paul's pattern? He was bold. If we think about a a story that actually happened in Philippi with a slave girl who was demonized. She was in bondage to a demon and exploited by men who used her quote-unquote gift for money. And Paul boldly delivered a demon out of her. Well, they lost their income. They got angry. They had him wrongfully whipped and imprisoned. But Paul didn't stop. He kept praising God. He kept pursuing his call. That didn't stop him. Didn't even make him blink. He was bold. He knew that they were going to get mad. And what's interesting is, as I said, he shouldn't have been whipped. He was a citizen. He should have had a trial. But he took it, and he went to prison, and He was unwavering in his focus and identity, and he praised God in the midst of being severely mistreated. He was humble. He didn't think of himself more highly or more lowly. He just saw himself correctly as a son of God and as a minister of God who honored authorities. And even in that case in the the prison in Philippi, He had every right as a citizen to expose the mistreatment. And those people involved in that would have been subjected to anything from paying him off, to being flogged themselves, to losing all their property, to being exiled. So when it says that they were scared, they were scared. They were really scared. But Paul covered the offense 
And he said, you know what? I'm not going to do any of that. I'm going to tell you about Jesus who loves you. And I forgive you. That's honor. He honored them and forgave without hesitation. No, he, I have no grumbling and complaining. He says repeatedly in his, in his letters, don't grumble, don't complain. He could have grumbled. He could have complained. But he didn't. He praised and he rejoiced in God his Father. He maintained a heart posture of gratitude no matter what. And guys, this takes practice. I mean, we read this story, but Paul didn't start out that way. If you read in Acts, when he first got saved, when he left the church, they, it says they had peace. So he didn't start out this way, necessarily. It takes practice. It takes a decision. One decision, then the next, then the next, to forgive, to release, to honor, to be thankful, to praise when it's hard. And what's neat is you see Paul and you say, Peter could do it. I can do it. Paul saw the value in each person and the treasure that God put in each one. And Colossians 3, 12 to 17, which I'll read out, has a whole list of characteristics. He says, So as the elect of God, holy and beloved, Put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bearing with one another and graciously forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord graciously forgave you, so also should you. And above all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with gratefulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do in all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. That's quite a list. I think I counted like 14 things when I was at home. And that's a little overwhelming, right? Think patience, compassion, kindness, humility. It's easy when it's easy, when things are going well. What about when it's not? How can we do this? What is there a key? Is there a secret that Paul had to pressing into this and allowing this to become his pattern of living? I think so. And I think you can find it in the beginning of that chapter in Colossians. One to three, where he says, Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ Jesus, seeking the things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God, set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. For you died, and your life has been hidden with Christ and God. You have to maintain that eternal perspective and know your position. Know your position. I'm in Christ. Who am I? I'm a daughter of God. I'm a son of God. In the eternal perspective, okay, so something's happening here and it doesn't feel good. It doesn't look good. But I know my God is good. 
And I know my God is faithful. Paul never gave up. I don't know many people who would get stoned by the city and then get up and get right back in the city preaching the gospel. That takes a lot of dedication. He never gave up. He was diligent and hardworking. He supported himself working as a tent maker while pouring out into the churches. And he says in his letters, he said, I worked day and night. You saw me do it. He was diligent and hardworking. He didn't rely on his own wisdom, but he operated in faith. Even when he had a plan to do one thing and he had a dream, he said, go to Macedonia. They said, okay, we're going to go to Macedonia. That wasn't the plan yesterday. It is today because God said so. And he tells them repeatedly, he tells the church to pursue four things. Righteousness, faith, peace, and love. And he talks about this quite a bit in Corinthians. And as I thought about that, I thought, who cares if you have a fancy message or a prophetic word that can last 20 minutes long with all kinds of strings of words? Who cares? If you go out that door and you can't be kind, you can't be compassionate. Paul calls that the, the gong, the clanging gong. You're just making noise. If you're not doing it in love, if you're not doing it, if you can't pursue love and do what you're going to do for God because you love God and you love the people that God loves, it doesn't matter. It's all about love. So the Bible gives us a really close look at another person who pursued a right administration here on earth. And I want to take some time to take a look at his example as well to see what more we can glean. Hebrews talks about this person in Hebrews 11, 8 to 10. It says, By faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance. And he left, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he lived as a stranger in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. For he was looking for the city, the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. He was looking to be a citizen under God's administration. And he looked around him, and he's like, this isn't the way it's supposed to be. And God said, okay, let's go. Let's find it. Let's do it. Let's make that place. That could be an example to the world of what it's like to live under my administration. And I'll use you to do it. If you skip down in Hebrews a little bit further, in verses 13 to 16, uh, he goes, all these, that's uh, the, the hall of faith is what we call it. All these died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen and welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth because they weren't citizens of this earth. They were strangers and exiles on the earth. For those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. And indeed, if they had been thinking of that country from which they left, they would have had opportunity to return. He's saying they didn't look back. They didn't look back. They kept going forward. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. 
Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Abraham, we know, most of us know the story pretty well. He was called out from his homeland with his wife and his household, which, you know, I always imagine this to be like Abraham and Sarah, some sheep, some goats, some camels, maybe some tents. I, I, I didn't realize, I wasn't thinking. He had 300 servants, over 300. They had wives and children. This was a huge entourage, huge. And they all left. And they said, we're going to find the place that God's going to show us. So he, and I, as I thought about that, I thought he was really looking for a place that his spirit resonated with. A place where you can find that deep rest that only comes from being where God has called you to be and doing what God has called you to do. So if we look at Abraham's pattern, we see that he flipped societal expectations of honor and honored the younger generation above himself. When he gave a lot the choice in land, he had every right as the elder to choose first. He didn't choose first. He let Lot choose first. And in doing that, he showed that he trusted in God's blessing. Because Lot chose what looked like the better land. God said, but Abraham said, it's not about that. It's about the God I serve. He's going to bless me and do his plan no matter what. And I thought about his leadership. How his herdsmen, so they split up and uh, had went different directions because the herdsmen for the two men were in bitter feuds. They were fighting, couldn't get along. So they split up, and then Lot and his whole household got taken captive. And Abraham took his 300 servants and said, we're going to go get them. And they didn't just battle one king. These were, they went out to save people they were just fighting with. And they went. And they did it. And they won. God was with them. And they won. But can you imagine that? What kind of leader can do that? Get over 300 men to go on a death mission? To save people they were just fighting with? That's amazing. This one really got me. I might actually cry when I go over it. Abraham, he's, he was a human being, so he made some mistakes. And he kind of told somebody that his wife was his sister. And um, a guy took Sarah to be his wife. Um, but before he could touch her, he realized that his entire household had been struck barren. And as he was kind of like, well, what's going on? You know, God revealed to him that this woman that you took is this man's wife, and you cannot have her. And so Abimelech confronted Abraham and said, what are you doing? And so Abraham's like, yeah, you're right. I messed up. Um, and he asks Abraham to pray so that Abimelech's household can be healed of being barren. Now, I always read that story, and I never really thought about the heart that had to go into that. 
Okay, Sarah was 90 at this point. 90. I'm assuming they got married pretty young because that's what they did in those days. They had been married for decades at this point with the promise of having heirs and having a child. And it hadn't happened yet. Middle Eastern culture, especially especially ancient Middle Eastern culture, was very, very heavy on fertility. Fertile livestock, fertile crops, and fertile wives. And if your wife was barren, it was a huge shame to that woman. It was a humiliation, not only to the woman, but to the husband and to the whole extended family on both sides. You were seen as being on the outs with the gods. So Abraham and Sarah, she's 90 years old, has never had a child. They've been promised. They've been told that they're going to have one. But it hasn't happened yet. Now, Abimelech didn't touch Sarah yet and already knew that the whole household was struck barren, which means they probably had a lot of kids. Can you imagine praying for somebody to receive healing breakthrough in an area that you haven't received it yet? An area that's a source of pain and humiliation culturally? Not just personally, but a huge culture. And you have to pray that somebody that has who knows how many kids already to be released to have more. And you haven't had one. But he did it. And God answered that prayer. And I thought about it. I said, you know what, God? If I'm going to be really honest, I'm going to be very brutally honest here. If you did that, I might get a little mad. (laughs) Like, why? Why have I not been faithful? Like, what did I, you know, what's going on? I don't know what Abraham felt. And we don't know what he thought, but we know what he did. He prayed, they were healed, and he kept moving on with God. And eventually they did get their miracle breakthrough. Because Abraham believed that God would keep his promise and work a miracle. And his miracle ultimately really had nothing to do with their miracle. He never gave up, and he never looked back. Now, Isaac grew up a little bit, and he was asked to sacrifice Isaac. It's a test. Do you love and trust in the blesser more than the blessing? How many times do our hearts get attached to the blessings that God pours out on us? And we can lose sight of where the focus really should be. Abraham loved and trusted the blesser more than the blessing. He believed that God would do what he said he would do, even if he didn't live to see it with his own eyes. And he never, ever looked back. When they went to find a wife for his son, he said, don't take my son back there. Don't take him back to the homeland. You bring her to me. You bring her here. Don't take him back. We're not going back there.
Now we're going to go back a little bit further in time. Before Abraham, before Noah, all the way back to the very first citizens of heaven here on earth. And I want to take a dive into what led into that all too infamous crunch that we still feel the effects of today. Adam and Eve, they were placed by God in the garden. They were in the place of right administration. And what did that mean? Well, placed, that word, it actually comes from a word that means rest. It was a place reserved just for them. They were part of God's family in perfect unity with God, and they were under God's authority. And God gave them a job. So this was a position of authority and rest, not inactivity, rest. So if we push this out a little bit and we think about, you know, our authority in God and our rest in God, it all comes back to faith, right? It's by faith that we have a relationship with God that makes us rest from you know, slavery to sin, and from the works of religion that we can wield in the authority of Christ, of God. It's through faith that we escape religion, that we escape common culture, that we, that we escape self. Because those are all wrong administrations. The only right administration isn't of ourself. But it's rather being in position in alignment with God. Using faith, God's faith. It's listed as a gift in 1 Corinthians 12. We can't strive into it, we can't work into it, but we can believe and surrender into it. So if we take a look at the, the temptation and see where, where did this go wrong? They had perfect unity. They, they didn't have a sin nature. How, how did this happen? Well, the serpent came up and said, has God really said? And what does Eve do? She engages. She doesn't flee, which is what we are told to do. Flee arguments. Flee those speculations. She's engaging. She's focusing on it. It distracts her. And if you look at her response... It's actually not exactly what God said. It's a little different. Now remember, there was no written language, so this was the word of God. He took the word of God and changed it just a little. And when I, th I think when he saw that, he said, oh, there's cracks. I can get in. He says, oh, you certainly will not die. So he takes that foundational crack and he keeps twisting into it until it's a direct contradiction of what God said and Eve's still engaging she's still focusing on it she's still getting distracted and she's starting to buy into the doubts and he says for God knows that the day you eat of it your eyes will be opened and you will be like God knowing good and evil he's attacking God's character God's not really looking out for you God's not really good. He doesn't really love you. 
If he really loved you, you would have been like him. Her, the deception's complete because she was already like him. And she bought into the lie. She didn't stand firm in her identity as a daughter of God made in his image. And we know the story. She took the fruit, ate of it, Adam with her, and all of humanity and the earth fell under the wrong administration. There's almost like that echo in your soul, right? You can, you can hear it sometimes. It's not the way it's supposed to be. It's not supposed to be this way. Now I want to take a look at Jesus, our administrative head. And I want to take a look at his temptation. Because it's very interesting, his temptation and the way he stood firm. And if you compare it back to the garden and the temptation in the garden, Satan comes right at him and says, if you are the son of God. First of all, Jesus had just been baptized. And the spirit of God came and said, this is my beloved son. And who I am well pleased. He was just affirmed in this area and then attacked. Uh, Age old trick of the devil. Right? So anyway, he comes after his identity. And Jesus, interestingly enough, he doesn't engage that. I think he's confident. He's very secure in who he is. I know he is. He was. He doesn't even engage the attack on the identity. And Satan says, make these stones into bread. Step outside of God's word for you right now and fulfill a desire or a need that you have right now. Do it for yourself. Create your own destiny. Jesus' answer is, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And he's actually quoting Deuteronomy 8.3 there. In other words, if God wants me to eat right now, He can miraculously supply manna, because that's what that verse is about, God supplying manna. He can miraculously supply manna for me to eat, and I don't need to take action on my own, and I don't need to uh, go by your word. I don't need to fulfill any perceived need on my own. God's got it. God's got it. And if you look back at that passage in Deuteronomy 8, humility and dependency are also key verse concepts. So Satan comes at him again. If you are the son of God, he's still trying. He's still trying to distract him and get him off of his position in God. If you're the son of God, throw yourself down. He's questioning God's character, challenging God's plan. Is God really good? Will he catch you? You're going to get hurt, break some bones, going to die. God, really good. And Jesus responds, and he says, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And he's referencing Deuteronomy again, Deuteronomy 6.16. And in that verse, he's saying always, a key verse concept back there is always remember God's provision and faithfulness. In Deuteronomy 6, it was talking about when the water came out of the rock. And it also refers to Amalek. Now, Amalek was a tribe that came and attacked the Israelites when they were parched in the desert, and God had not yet released the the water, the whole water in the rock scene. And Amalek, um, 
they attacked him at the rears. They were attacking their women, their children, their elderly, their infirm. It was not a fair attack. It was not, and it wasn't like, like when I dug into some of the Hebrew language there, it said, it wasn't even like, oh, we don't like these guys, and that's why we're attacking them. It was like, oh, they're there, great, we'll attack them. It was like, not planned, it was just that they were attacking just to attack. So they were mistreated. And what God says is when you go into the promised land, he says, wipe the memory. Wipe the memory of that attack. Erase it. You're not going to take offense into the promised land. Leave it behind you. And trust in my provision. Trust in my goodness. Trust in my faithfulness. Because that offense and that mistreatment is not coming under my administration. Satan's not done. He says, all these things I will give you if you will bow down and worship me. Here he's going for pride, desire for glorification, for power and self. You can almost echo, hear the echo from the garden. He says, do it. Do it your way. Don't do it God's way. Take control of your own destiny. And Jesus' response is quoting Deuteronomy 6 again. 613 here, he says, Yahweh your God you shall fear, and him you shall serve. Now, that's two quotes of Jesus during the temptation scene from the same passage in Deuteronomy. Both were about possessing the promised land. And Abraham, if you look at the, uh, if you read that whole chapter, Abraham is actually referenced there. It's a passage that encourages the exaltation in the, of the name of Yahweh to remember Yahweh only, to trust in Yahweh only, to depend upon Yahweh only. Don't test him. Don't complain him. To complain against him. Don't question his plans. Just trust him. Have faith. Believe that you can live in the rest of Yahweh, in his blessings, and in his provision, and in his dominion. Sounds a lot like a citizen, right? Yahweh's the head. He's got control of the area. He's providing. It's provision. It's like a citizen of heaven. Trust. Trust Yahweh. It's interesting because if you look at Deuteronomy 6.12, God says, do this so you will always remember that it was I who brought you out of Egypt and out of slavery and gave you citizen status. So where Adam and Eve fell, Jesus triumphed and showed us how to stand firm and live in God's freedom as citizens of heaven. So how should we live? What can we take from this? Well, can we take from Jesus' pattern, his example in the temptation from Abraham and Paul? As I thought about this, I thought, number one, you got to know your identity. You have to know who you are. You are, before your, uh, any job that you want to list in this world or in church and ministry circles, you are a son or a daughter of God. That's who you are. You belong to God's family. Your position of freedom and authority stems from this. Any ministry stems from this 
position of being a son or a daughter of God. We've got to get that revelation deep into our hearts so we can stand firm no matter what. We need to live in faith. Faith is key to uh, living in God's freedom, to be living God's way of life. The Bible says without faith, we can't please God. We need to have faith. Honor. Now, John Bevere has a great book about honor. Um, I encourage you to check it out. If you really hate reading, he has a YouTube video series, teaching series about honor, which is excellent as well, very much based on the book. Um, But honor is rooted in humility and love. And God calls us to honor even when it's hard. It's easy to honor when it's people are being nice, right? Very easy. But when you're being uh, mistreated or maybe you have some insecurities, it can get hard. But honor is important. It prevents jealousy because you realize that, you know, if you go back to your identity, who I am and what I do has nothing to do with anybody else because God made every single one for a purpose. And it's awesome, every single one. So it prevents jealousy and places proper value on each person. I think a big part of honoring other people is, you know, we're humans. We make mistakes. So when there is a relationship breakdown, we own our stuff. We don't try to make somebody else own our stuff. And we don't over-own other people's stuff. We kind of see with sober judgment what's going on there. And then um, mistreatment, because this happened to Paul, this happened to the Israelites. You know, what do we do when we're mistreated? Maybe we lash out in anger, and we say and do things we shouldn't. Um, Maybe we react out of hurt, and we withdraw. That's my faulty default. Uh, We withdraw like a pill bug, you know, how like you poke them and they curl up. (laughs) That's me. (laughs) But it's not right. Neither one is right, and neither one is good. Uh, When I thought about Paul's pattern, he didn't curl up like a pill bug, and he didn't lash out either. He went forth boldly in his mission, boldly proclaiming the good news of Christ, boldly showing love and kindness and forgiveness, knowing that God was his shield. Because If I'm trying to be my shield, I'm not going to let God be my shield. And if I'm reacting out of anger or hurt, I'm trying to be my shield. We need to let God be our shields. So as I thought about this, just practical tips of how do we do do this? Because it can be difficult, right? I thought, no, we can take these opportunities, relationship breakdowns, mistreatments, real or perceived, um, and look at it as an opportunity, an opportunity for deeper healing in our own hearts, and an opportunity to show the Jesus kind of love. Because it's easy to love when somebody's being nice. It's really hard to love when they're not. So if we're going to love like Jesus loves, we have to love when it's hard. And as I thought about, well, how do you do that and not get hurt? Because I'm very mushy inside. 
very, very mushy inside. <laughs> and I thought, well, how do you do that? And, I, and you know what he challenged me with? He said, bless them. Bless them. But don't bless them for any kind of benefit back to yourself. Don't bless them because you want to fix something because I, wanna, I always want to fix things. Bless them because it blesses me. Do it because you love me and bless. So if that helps you. And he said to, and then as I thought about Paul's pattern, when he was mistreated, he rejoiced and celebrated and praised God. So that was the challenge that God gave me. Maybe that'll help somebody today. And in that, we release and operate in grace. And as I said earlier, you don't just get this way. You have to make choices to be this way. And it takes practice. You might do really awesome in one day, and then the next day you totally mess up. Get yourself up. Try again the next time. It's okay. Just keep walking. The key is to keep walking, keep moving, and keep making those choices to release. Because God doesn't operate out of frustration, anxiety, festering wounds, or fear, but out of wholeness and faith. And to sum it all up, pursue love. If the prayer and worship teams want to come forward. As we end today, I want to lay our hearts bare before the Lord. Is there an area that we need to bring under his administration? Maybe it's an area we need to release greater measures of grace and honor in our lives. Maybe it's a faulty thought pattern that keeps wanting to to go off and cycle through our minds. Maybe it's an unhealed wound that needs God's healing touch. Maybe it's a hardened area of bitterness, resentment, and anger. Maybe it's a struggle of identity and faith. And I want to include one more group. Uh, Over the week, I was really feeling like rejection was an issue with more than one person here and that people were struggling with feeling rejected and rejection. For some, maybe it's a, individ- a certain situation. And for others, maybe it's like a faulty default. And maybe they, there could be like a spirit attached. But if you're struggling with rejection, please come and get prayer and find God's healing and freedom and wholeness. So, uh, so we can live in alignment to his ways and the power of the gospel.